Okay, tonight we finished the book of Daniel that we started back in March um, and then hit another sermon in April. And then once uh, the sabbatical got gone, then we kind of have been progressing through to the end. And we're going to cover the last of the four visions in the, the latter half of the book of Daniel. And it spans three whole chapters, but I'm not going to go line by line through three whole chapters tonight. Instead, we're mostly going to be in chapters 10 and 12 and just give a brief mention in chapter 11. And let me give you a little roadmap of where we're going to be after this. So next week, uh, Chad will be back in the pulpit and he's going to do a wrap up of Ephesians. And so kind of going back through Ephesians and wrapping it up. The following Friday, I'm going to take us through Daniel's greatest hits. Kind of like a, a, a look at the sermons that we did and kind of the main themes and application. And then the following week, which will be the very last Friday in July, we're going to have a time of worship and testimony and prayer and just kind of share with one another what the Lord has been speaking to us through the sermons on Ephesians and Daniel that we've been in uh, pretty much close to the beginning of 2022. So I'm looking forward to that. And that'll take us about into August, which is hard to believe. Uh, and, and with tonight's sermon, um, I, I want to say I'm, I'm really excited about this sermon. I, I really believe it's, it's the word of the Lord for us tonight. Uh, I think God put it on my heart. My, my concern whenever that happens is that I'm not going to be able to live up to what I think the Lord's put in my heart. <laughs> and, and I never want to stand in the way or get in the way of, of the word of the Lord to us as a church. So I appreciate that we sang Show Us Christ because it does prepare our hearts to get ready to hear the preaching of the word. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 10 and we'll get rolling. Starting at verse one. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So a quick note about Cyrus that will be relevant kind of later on. In Cyrus's first year, he made the declaration that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and build the house of God. And that signaled the end of the exile. So that was in his first year. In chapter 10, it opens and says that it was the third year of Cyrus. So the project of returning and building the house has been going on for about two years to this point. And we'll come back to this a little bit later in the sermon. Verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the three full weeks. Now, there's several connections in 10 through 12 with chapter 1. And I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the structure of Daniel is a chiasm. It goes out and back. And so chapter 1 and chapters 10 through 12 are kind of the bookends to the book of Daniel. And there are numerous similarities between them. So in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends have arrived in Babylon at the beginning of their time in exile. In chapter 10, it seems that the exile is over, but Daniel is still in Babylon. In chapter 1, Daniel resolves to not eat the food from the king's table or drink his wine. But in chapter 10, and in chapter 10, Daniel does not permit wine or meat to enter his mouth for 21 days. In chapter 1, we're told that after 10 days of seeds and water, Daniel and his friends look better in appearance than everybody else. 
And in verse 8 of this chapter, Daniel beholds an otherworldly being, and it says that his radiant appearance was fearfully changed. And I think that because chapter 1 focuses on Daniel's arrival and the beginning of his time in exile and his experience in exile, Daniel's mourning here in chapter 10 because the exile is over, but something is not quite right. There is not a happily ever after for him or for Israel. And so Daniel forsakes his normal food, and I think we're meant to understand that he returns to his diet of seeds and water for at least 21 days. He goes back to the beginning. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So to understand who this is that Daniel sees, we actually need to look ahead in the Bible. We need to look further on in the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John sees somebody very similar So if you have your Bible, keep one finger in Daniel 10 and then flip over to Revelation chapter 1. And if you bought one of those single-volume Daniels, then I guess you're out of luck. But flip over to Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength." I won't go through and note all the similarities, but the point is who John sees here in Revelation 1 is meant to remind us of who Daniel sees in chapter 10 and linking the two, that they are the same figure. And in Revelation 1, the figure is unmistakably the risen, ascended, and glorified Jesus. That's who John sees on the beach of Patmos. And so this means that the man clothed in linen in Daniel 10 is the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, in this vision, Daniel is looking at the Son of God before the Son of God entered time and history as the man Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And in a little bit, this figure that Daniel sees will be given a name, and that name is Michael. And if I'm going to lose you anywhere tonight, I'm probably going to lose you right here. So I'll try to go slowly, uh, because when I get nervous about explaining things, I tend to go fast. So I will try to go slowly and hopefully we can stay together. This is not the only place in Scripture where the one that we know as Jesus appeared before his incarnation as a man. So throughout the Old Testament, we occasionally read about the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. In Joshua 5, Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the army of Yahweh, and Joshua worships him, and he's commanded to remove his shoes because he's on holy ground, which is what God told Moses to do in Exodus 3. And when we gather up all these little bits in the Old Testament, we see that the angel of Yahweh, the commander of Yahweh's army, and this figure in Daniel 10 
all point to a messenger of Yahweh who appears at various points in Israel's history and who in the time of the Roman Empire will take on human flesh as Jesus. Or as we sing in O Come All Ye Faithful at Christmas time, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. The word of the Father had appeared before in Israel's history, but not in flesh until Jesus was born. Does that make sense? We, we, we together? All right. Verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So twice it says that Daniel has no strength, and then Daniel falls on his face into a deep sleep. And if you remember from last week in chapter 9, Daniel also fell into a deep sleep. And this is a kind of death experience for Daniel. He's undone. He sees something. He's completely undone. He has no strength, and he's lying face down on the ground like a dead man. And when Daniel falls into a deep sleep, he's touched, and he's raised to his hands and knees. And this is significant. It's a half step towards standing. And the reason it's important is because in the book of Daniel, there's a recurring theme about who will stand and who will fall. So think back through Daniel and some of these instances of standing. Uh, in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends stand before the king. The wise men and, his and the enchanters also stand before the king. God's kingdom that will break in pieces all the other kingdoms will stand forever, we're told. Nebuchadnezzar causes his statue to stand. The ram in Daniel 8 stands until the goat stands and then tramples over the ram. And then in chapter 11, which we're not going to look at very closely, there's a succession of kings who stand and then fall. But here, Daniel goes from a deep sleep on the ground to only half standing. Verse 11. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So now Daniel is fully standing. Verse 12. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left here with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days? For the vision is for days yet to come. Okay, so now we want to ask, who is this that is speaking to Daniel? Because if the figure with the dazzling appearance is Michael, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, then somebody else has to be speaking to Daniel because this somebody else refers to Michael. So who is it? When chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision... And one in the heavenly host, it might be Gabriel, it might not, explains it to him. In chapter 8, Daniel sees a vision, and then Gabriel is commanded to explain the vision to him. In chapter 9, Daniel seeks God in prayer, and then Gabriel comes to Daniel and explains 
what it means, the, the 70 years and the 70 weeks of years. And also in chapter 9, Gabriel refers to Daniel as one who is greatly loved. Now here in chapter 10, Daniel sees a powerful vision that undoes him, and he's touched, and he receives an explanation. So I think Daniel sees Michael in the vision, and then Gabriel touches Daniel and makes him stand, and then is going to explain the vision to him. So the pattern in these chapters of Daniel with the visions is Daniel has a vision, or he prays, then somebody explains the vision to Daniel. And that's what's going on here, I think. He sees a vision of Michael, and then Gabriel touches him and is going to explain the vision to him. And if all that's confusing, and it probably is, then this is all you need to keep in mind for now. Daniel sees the Son of God, who's identified as Michael, but he's now speaking with the angel Gabriel as he's done before. That make sense? All right, we'll go on from there. Now, Gabriel says that he was withstood by the prince of Persia for 21 days. And just as Gabriel is a mighty angel, the prince of Persia is not a human king, but a mighty demonic power who opposes heaven. If he didn't oppose heaven, he wouldn't be fighting with Gabriel. And what we learn in the Bible is that there are non-human powers who influence the human leadership of nations and other entities. And some influence toward heavenly rule, and some influence toward wicked rule. That's why in Ephesians 6, Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against the human rulers, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we really contend against. Not political parties not dictators or tyrants, not specific media outlets or activist groups, demons. That's who we really contend against. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places work to multiply human evil in the world. And it's the best kept secret of hell. It's the best kept secret of hell because you will never read about it in the news, no matter what the news source is. You will never read that there are demonic powers behind human evil in the world. And it's not a secret of heaven, because it's right here in the scriptures for all to read. So when we read of, of Gabriel being withstood for 21 days by the prince of Persia, I think we picture something like Gandalf and the Balrog wrestling, you know, gripped in this, in this death embrace as they're falling into the abyss. It's probably less dramatic than that. Uh, instead, there was probably a situation involving King Cyrus in his third year and his kingdom that was potentially going to hurt the Jews. It was potentially going to cause problems for the Jews. In Ezra 4, we read that after the foundation has been laid of the temple, the new house of God, there are these adversaries who come and who oppose the building of the house of God, and they actually succeed in getting the Jews to quit. They actually have to stop for a while. I think that's the battle that Gabriel and Michael are wrestling with the Prince of Persia over. So that's how we're better off seeing that, I think. Gabriel and Michael are influencing on behalf of God's people, and the Prince of Persia is trying to influence against them. Verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, 
By reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. So first, Daniel can't stand, but a touch enables him to stand. Then he can't speak, but a touch enables him to speak. And now he can speak, but he says that he has no strength and no breath left in him. What's going on? What, what is happening to Daniel? It's, it's kind of painful to see this holy, faithful man um, with no strength and no voice and no breath. And I think the answer is that Daniel, with no strength and no voice and no breath, is a picture of the people of God at that time. Israel was meant to be a light to the world. They were meant to bring the nations to God. The nations were to flock to the mountain of God. But Israel never fulfilled what God had intended for Israel. They rebelled and they were sent into exile. And now they've been back in the land for roughly two years, building the house of God. And in Ezra 3, we're told that they laid the foundation in the second year of their return, but there's discouragement among the people as they lay the foundation. Because when the foundation is laid, we're told this, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And the prophet Haggai will say to these same people, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? So there's discouragement among some of the people who have gone back and who are building the house of God. The people of God had fallen so far from where they had been and what they were supposed to be. And the house of God has fallen so far from where it was. It's like falling into a deep sleep and having no strength and no voice and no breath. Verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So for a third time, Daniel is touched and he's strengthened. And now he's fully ready to receive what Gabriel has to say about what's going to happen to the people of God in a latter time. And he's going to start now, and he's going to go through the end of the age. Verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And then verse one of chapter 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That's still Gabriel speaking there in chapter 11. So in the first year of Darius, Gabriel stood behind and confirmed Darius the Mede. Darius was ordained to defeat the Babylonian empire and bring in a new empire. But now things are such in Cyrus's empire that Gabriel has to fight against it. He has, to, he has to fight against it instead of supporting it. The prince of Persia is trying to turn it away from heavenly rule. And even though three more kings will arise in Persia, 
and this is in chapter 11, eventually the prince of Greece is going to come, and that's not going to be any better. So the further we get from Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, the further away we get from heavenly rule. And we already knew this from the other visions. And without giving, excuse me, scripture short shrift, I should have written that differently. We're going to skip over chapter 11 uh, because it's, it's a very long and detailed look at what's going to happen to the people of God in the latter days. And it tracks exactly with the visions that we saw in 7, 8, and 9 and the explanations from 7, 8, and 9. It's just longer. There's, there's the same cast of characters, but there's more detail. And since we've already covered those others pretty specifically, we're going to move on to chapter 12, where we join the end of the vision. So go ahead and look at chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to eternal life, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So let's return to Michael, who I've said is the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the prince of Daniel's people. He's contended against the forces who oppose heaven. And he will arise near the end of the age, and when he does, there will be great trouble for Daniel's people. I think this all maps pretty well onto the life of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. So I think we can say that when Michael arises, points ahead to Jesus establishing the kingdom in the first few decades of the church. And Gabriel says that when Michael arises, there will be a time of trouble, such as never there has been since there was a nation until that time. But he says that Daniel's people will be delivered. Now, we know that at the end of the age, in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And not all of the Jews were delivered. So who was delivered? Who does he say will be delivered? This is where I think it's important to rethink what's meant by Daniel's people and who Daniel's people really are. There's a link between Daniel's people and the book that's mentioned here. Those who are delivered will be those whose names written in the book. And I think this is an advanced picture of what we understand as justification by faith and being justified by faith, that we're made a part of God's family, not by our own righteousness, not by our own heritage, not by our own works, but by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Daniel's people are not ethnic Jews, but those who will live by faith in Jesus, trusting that he's God's Messiah and the ruler of nations. Those who trust and follow Jesus are those whose names are found written in the book, and they will be delivered. Does that make sense? Okay, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, 
All these things would be finished. So if the man clothed in linen is Michael, which I think he is, then he's above the waters of the stream. He's hovering above the waters as the spirit hovered above the waters, the face of the waters at the beginning of creation. Michael is the prince of Daniel's people, and he is going to make a new creation. Time, times, and half a time, that can match up with the 70 weeks that we talked about last year. There are 70 weeks followed by 62 weeks, which is a greater number, and then half of a week. That could be the time, times, and half a time. Uh, It all points toward the end of the age where God's kingdom no longer exists in these four successive empires. But instead, as Jesus tells the Pharisees in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, there he is, or there For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's the mountain that fills the whole earth. We're in the kingdom of God right now. Verse 8. I heard but did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel's told twice to go your way. Daniel's way is the way of faithfulness. He was faithful when he arrived in Babylon. He was faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. And he was faithful to Darius because he served them faithfully. And by serving them, he was serving God. And he was faithful when he was pressured to stop praying. Daniel is to go his way, the way of faithfulness, until the end. And at the end, and this is the very last verse, Daniel shall rest and he shall stand in his allotted place at the end of the days. There are many figures who stand in the book of Daniel, but the last one mentioned to stand is Daniel himself. And by going the way of faithfulness, he will be able to stand at the end of the days after the final judgment. And if Daniel's people go the way of faithfulness, they too will be able to stand after the final judgment. Okay, I have three points of application out of chapters 10, 11, and 12. And the first one is that spiritual warfare happens through the church. Spiritual warfare happens through the church. I read from Ephesians 6 earlier, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the verse then immediately follows that, is this one. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So Michael fought the prince of Persia. In Revelation 12, Michael and his angels cast the dragon out of heaven into earth. That was Jesus's ascension. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, Satan, the accuser, no longer had any place in heaven, and he was cast out. And at the end of the age, the rock that's carved out by no human hand will become a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's the church. That's us. And based on Ephesians 6, I take that to mean that we now do the fighting. 
The fighting used to come from Michael, but now we, the church, do the fighting. Jesus has already fought for us, and he's already overcome the evil one so that the evil one cannot achieve final victory. And we are his body filled by the Spirit. So until the very end, the church contends with the powers to influence real events here on earth. Does that make sense? The church contends with the powers to influence real events here on earth. It's no longer Michael fighting the powers, but the Son of God fighting the powers through his body, the church. Remember that Paul says that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We have died and our life is hid with Christ in God. And through our actions here, we participate in battle in realms that we can't see. And so individually and corporately, we suit up in the armor of God and we wrestle with powers and principalities and we refuse to go down. That's what it means for us to go our way to the end. So that's the first one. Spiritual warfare happens through the church. We do the fighting. Number two, we are called to stand. We are called to stand. As we wrestle with powers and principalities, we do all that we can to remain on our feet. We do everything we can to remain on our feet, to stand in the way of faithfulness to God. It's possible that we will be struck down, but we may not lay down. We may not compromise. We may not give up. We may not be cowards. Through prayer and service and fidelity to one another, we fight as Jesus did. And if we fall in the battle, his resurrecting touch will put us back on our feet again at the end of days. And let me tell you how we most often fall down. We've, we've talked plenty about persecution of the church throughout our time in Daniel. And that does happen, but it doesn't happen as often as we're struck down by discouragement and by despair. That is how we are most often knocked off of our feet, is through discouragement and through despair. Our own responses to what's happening around us and in our lives knocks us off our feet far more than actual people do. Again, we go back to the Jews laying the foundation of the temple. Some saw it and thought, how puny. What can this possibly do in the world? And they wept. And sometimes we look at our lives. Sometimes we look at our families. Sometimes we look at our home groups, our church, or just the world around us. And discouragement and despair, which come from the evil one, find their way through the cracks. And in those times, we can become discouraged and, and despairing, and we get knocked off of our feet. And this is why Paul prays that after having done all we can, that we would stand firm. It takes work to stay on your feet. It really takes work to stay on your feet. It takes a gritty refusal to not go down when discouragement and despair feel like a flood is just washing over you all the time. And this is only possible when we band together to do our fighting together. And when you feel yourself going down, about to be knocked off of your feet, reach out to somebody. Reach out to somebody to pray for you, to help you get back on your feet. And when we band together on Friday nights or in our home groups or during the annual fast, we come together to fight against discouragement and despair. Amen? We're, charged, we're not charged with winning. We're, God doesn't charge us to win the battle. He charges us to stand and to stay on our feet. And third, 
is a renewed vision for corporate prayer. A renewed vision for corporate prayer. So two weeks ago, we talked about the church as a house of prayer for the nations. We do warfare in and in the world and, and for the world through our corporate prayer together and our fasting and our worship. In the past two, three years, we've been really diligent, I think, to establish a time of prayer at the end of our meetings. And we've been very consistent with that. It took about 13 years to do that. But in the past two or three years, we've been, we've been diligent, we've been consistent. And it's an important time when we battle together. But I also recognize it is the last thing that we do at the end of our meeting. And it can be very tempting to keep quiet and let somebody else pray or to just keep quiet and see if maybe we're getting toward that long period of silence where then somebody is going to wrap up the time and we're going to be done. Our prayer time is a reliable six to eight minutes every time. And that's about five or seven people praying. And that's probably about 5% of the church. And I'm not saying that we need to have 45-minute prayer times at the end of our meetings, but I am saying that we probably have more capacity for prayer than we actually use. And so my encouragement in a renewed vision for prayer is to not hold back and wait for somebody else to go, or don't hold back so that we can be finished sooner. Contend and wrestle with all of us. Let's all do that together. We should have more people suited up and ready for battle. We can't lose sight of what we're doing when we actually come together to pray, whether on Friday nights or in our home groups or any other time. We're seeking to change the world. We really are seeking to change the world, whether by interceding for one person or for a whole nation. A lot of people want to change the world. God gives us the ability to actually do it when we come together to pray. We do the fighting, not the angel of the Lord, not Michael, not the commander of Yahweh's army, but us, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is the Lord's. We have just begun to fight. Amen? Amen.